Chapter 4, Part 1 of St. George and St. Michael, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. St. George and St. Michael, Volume 1, by George MacDonald. Chapter 4, A Chapter of Fools, Part 1. The same afternoon, as it happened, a little company of rustics, who had just issued from the low hatch door of the village inn, stood for a moment under the sign of the crown and mitre, which swung huskily creaking from the bough of an ancient thorn-tree, then passed onto the road, and took their way together. "'Hope you not, then,' said one of them, as continuing their previous conversation, "'that we shall escape unhurt. It is a parlous business. Not as one of us is afeard as I knows on, but the old earl, he do have a most unregenerate temper, and you had better look to it, my masters. I tell thee, master Upstill, it's not the old earl as I'm afeard on, but the young lord, for thou knows as well as e'er a one, it be not without cause that men do call him a wizard, for a wizard he be, and that of the worst sort. We shall be out again afore sundown, shannot we? said another. That I trust. Up to the which hour the High Court of Parliament assembled will have power to protect its own age on croning? Nay, that I cannot tell. It be a parlous job, and for mine own part, whether for the love I bear to the truth, or the hatred I cherish toward the scarlet Antichrist with her seven tails, tush, tush, John, seven heads, man, and ten horns, those are the numbers Master Flower you read. Nay, I know not for your horns, but for the rest I say seven tales. Did not honest Master Flower you set forth unto us last meeting, that the scarlet woman sat upon seven hills, eh? Have with you there, Master Sycamore. Well, for the sake of sound argument, I grant you, but we had got to do with no heads, nor no tails neither, save and except as you may say, the sting is in the tail, and then, or I greatly mistake, it's not seven times seven as will serve to count the stings, come of the tails what may. Very true, said another, it be the stings and not the tails we want news of, but think you his lordship will yield them up without gainsaying to us the messengers of the high parliament now assembled? For mine own part, said John Croning, Though I fear it come of the old Adam yet left in me, I do count it a sorrowful thing that the Earl should be such a vile recusant. He never fails with a friendly word, or it may be a jest, a foolish jest, but honest, for any one gentle or simple he may meet. More than once has he boarded me in that fashion. What do you think he said to me now, one day as I was mowing of the grass in the court, close by the white horse that spout up the water, high as a house from his nose-drills. Says he to me, for he came down the grand staircase, and steps out and spies me at the work with my old scythe, and comes over to me, and says he, Why, Thomas, says he, not knowing of my name, Why, Thomas, says he, you look like old time himself, a mowing of us all down, says he. For sure, my lord, says I, your lordship reads it aright, for all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the field. 
he look humble at that, for great man as he be, his earthly tabernacle, though more than sizable, is but a frail one, and that he do know. And, says he, where did you read that, Thomas? I am not a larned man, please your lordship, says I, and I cannot honestly say I read it nowheres, but I heed the words from a book your lordship have had news of. They do call it the Holy Bible, but they tell me that they of your lordship's persuasion like it not. You are very much mistaken there, Thomas, says he. I read my Bible most days, only not the English Bible, which is full of errors, but the Latin, which is all as God gave it, says he, and thereby I had not where to answer withal. I fear you proved a poor champion of the truth, Master Croning. Confess now, cast down up still. Had he not both sun and wind of me, standing, so to say, on his own hearthstone? Had it not been so, I could have called hard names with the best of you, though that is by rights the gift of the preachers of the truth. See how the good master flowered you excelleth therein, sprinkling them abroad from the watering pot of the gospel? Verily, when my mind is too feeble to grasp his argument, my memory lays fast hold upon the hard names, and while I hold by them, I have it all in a nutshell. Fortified, occasionally, by a pottle of ale, and keeping their spirits constantly stirred by much talking, they had been all day occupied in searching the Catholic houses of the neighbourhood for arms. What authority they had for it never came to be clearly understood. Plainly they believed themselves possessed of all that was needful, or such men would never have dared it. As it was, they prosecuted it with such a bold front that not until they were gone did it occur to some who had yielded what arms they possessed to question whether they had done wisely in acknowledging such fellows as parliamentary officials without demanding their warrant. Their day's gleanings up to this point, of swords and pikes, guns and pistols, they had left in charge of the host of the inn whence they had just issued, and were now bent on crowning their day's triumph with a supreme act of daring, the renown of which they enlarged in their own imaginations, while undermining the courage needful for its performance, by enhancing its terrors as they went. At length two lofty hexagonal towers appeared, and the consciousness that the final test of their resolution drew nigh took immediate form in a fluttering at the heart, which, however, gave no outward sign but that of silence, and indeed, they were still too full of the importance of unaccustomed authority to fear any contempt for it on the part of others. It happened that at this moment Raglan Castle was full of merry-making upon occasion of the marriage of one of Lady Herbert's waiting gentlewomen to an officer of the household, and in these festivities the Earl of Worcester and all his guests were taking a part. Among the numerous members of the household was one who, from being a turnspit, had risen, chiefly in virtue of an immovably lugubrious expression of countenance, to be the Earl's fool. From this peculiarity his fellow-servants had given him the nickname of the Hangman, but the man himself had chosen the role of a Puritan parson as affording the best groundwork for the display of a humour suitable to the expression of countenance with which his mother had endowed him. 
That mother was Goody Reese, concerning whom, as already hinted, strange things were whispered. In the earlier part of his career, the fool had not unfrequently found his mother's reputation a sufficient shelter from persecution, and, indeed, there might have been reason to suppose that it was for her son's sake she encouraged her own evil repute, a distinction involving considerable risk, seeing the time had not yet arrived, when the disbelief in such powers was sufficiently advanced for the safety of those reported to possess them. In her turn, however, she ran a risk somewhat less than ordinary from the fact that her boy was a domestic in the family of one whose eldest son, the heir to the earldom, lay under a similar suspicion. For not a few of the household were far from satisfied that Lord Herbert's known occupations in the Yellow Tower were not principally ostensible, and that he and his man had nothing to do with the black art, or some other of the many regions of occult science, in which the ambition after unlawful power may hopefully exercise itself. Upon occasion of a family fate, merriment was in those days carried further on the part of both masters and servants than, in the greatly altered relations and conditions of the present day, would be desirable, or indeed possible. In this instance, the fun broke out in the arranging of a mock marriage between Thomas Rees, commonly called Tom Fool, and a young girl who served under the cook. Half the jest lay in the contrast between the long face of the bridegroom, both congenitally and willfully miserable, and that of the bride, broad as a harvest moon, and rosy almost to purple. The bridegroom never smiled, and spoke with his jaws rather than his lips, while the bride seldom uttered a syllable without grinning from ear to ear, and displaying a marvellous appointment of huge and brilliant teeth. Entering solemnly into the joke, Tom expressed himself willing to marry the girl, but represented, as an insurmountable difficulty, that he had no clothes for the occasion. Thereupon the earl, drawing from his pocket his bunch of keys, directed him to go and take what he liked from his wardrobe. Now, the earl was a man of large circumference, and the fool as lank in person as in countenance. Tom took the keys, and was gone some time, during which many conjectures were hazarded as to the style in which he would choose to appear. When he re-entered the great hall, where the company was assembled, the roar of laughter which followed his appearance made the glass of its great cupola ring, for not merely was he dressed in the earl's beaver hat and satin cloak, splendid with plush and gold and silver lace, but he had endued a corresponding suit of his clothes as well, even to his silk stockings, garters, and roses, and with the help of many pillows and other such farcing, so filled the garments, which otherwise had hung upon him like a shawl from a peg, and made of himself such a sweet creature of bombast, that, with ludicrous unlikeness of countenance, he bore in figure no distant resemblance to the earl himself. Meantime, Lady Elizabeth had been busy with a scullery maid, whom she had attired in a splendid brocade of her grandmother's, with all the suitable belongings of ruff, high collar, and lace wings, such as Queen Elizabeth is represented with in Oliver's portrait. Upon her appearance, 
a few minutes after Tom's, the laughter broke out afresh in redoubled peals, and the merriment was at its height when the warder of one of the gates entered and whispered in his master's ear the arrival of the bumpkins, and their mission announced, he informed his lordship, with all the importance and dignity they knew how to assume. The earl burst into a fresh laugh, but presently it quavered a little and ceased, while over the amusement still beaming on his countenance gathered a slight shade of anxiety, for who could tell what tempest such a mere whirling of straws might not forerun? A few words of the warders had reached Tom where he stood, a little aside, his solemn countenance radiating disapproval of the tumultuous folly around him. He took three strides towards the earl. "'Wherein lieth the new jest?' he asked with dignity. "'A set of country louts, my lord,' answered the earl, "'are at the gate, affirming the right of search in this your lordship's house of Raglan.' "'For what?' arms my lord and wherefore on what ground on the ground that your lordship is a vile recusant a papist and therefore a traitor no doubt although they use not the word said the earl i shall be round with them said tom embracing the assumed proportions in front of him and turning to the door ere the earl had time to conceive his intent he had hurried from the hall followed by fresh shouts of laughter, for he had forgotten to stuff himself behind, and, when the company caught sight of his back as he strode out, the tenuity of the foundation for such a huge hill of flesh was as absurd as Falstaff's haporth of bread to the intolerable deal of sack. But the next moment the earl had caught the intended joke, and although a trifle concerned about the affair, was of too mirth-loving a nature to interfere with Tom's project, the result of which would doubtless be highly satisfactory, at least to those not primarily concerned. He instantly called for silence, and explained to the assembly what he believed to be Tom Fool's intent, and, as there was nothing to be seen from the hall, the windows of which were at a great height from the floor, and Tom's scheme would be fatally imperilled by the visible presence of spectators, from some at least of whom gravity of demeanour could not be expected, gave hasty instructions to several of his sons and daughters to disperse the company to upper windows, having a view of one or the other court, for no one could tell where the fool's humour might find its principal arena. The next moment, in the plain dress of rough brownish cloth, which he always wore except upon state occasions, he followed the fool to the gate, where he found him, talking through the wicket-grating to the rustics, who, having passed drawbridge and portcullises, of which neither the former had been raised, nor the latter lowered for many years, now stood on the other side of the gate, demanding admittance. In the parley, Tom Fool was imitating his master's voice, and every one of the peculiarities of his speech to perfection, addressing them with extreme courtesy, as if he took them for gentlemen of no ordinary consideration, a point in his conception of his part which he never forgot throughout the whole business. To the dismay of his master, he was even more than admitting, almost boasting, 
that there was an enormous quantity of weapons in the castle, sufficient at least to arm ten thousand horsemen, a prodigious statement, for, at the uttermost, there was not more than the tenth part of that amount, still a somewhat larger provision, no doubt, than the intruders had expected to find. The pseudo-earl went on to say that the armoury consisted of one strong room only, the door of which was so cunningly concealed and secured that no one but himself knew where it was, or, if found, could open it. But such, he said, was his respect to the will of the most august Parliament, that he would himself conduct them to the said armoury, and deliver over upon the spot, into their safe custody, the whole mass of weapons to carry away with them. And thereupon he proceeded to open the gate. End of chapter 4, part 1